Well, amen. Grab a seat. Good morning, Harvest. If I don't know you, my name's Jamie. I'm the proto serving as a pastor and elder here. And I'm just going to tell you right now, that red light was not on first service. And Jonelle, does that mean stop? Don't preach? I mean, if, I heard, if y'all heard the first one, I wouldn't do it again either. I promise you that. But I am excited that we get to join together in visiting Judges this morning. However you access God's Word, please meet me in Judges chapter 3. We'll read that here in a moment. But as we draw our attention to Judges, let me draw our attention back to something Bill said and add my congratulations to Sam Kreitz and the team out in College Station on their first service today. Certainly, let's let our prayers and thoughts be with them. There's a big uh, kind of momentum building day for them and that strategic church planning location. But as we turn our attentions to Judges, let's do so noting that the thesis statement of the book, so all good English students here know the thesis statement of any work, uh, lets you know the purpose for which the work is, is oriented towards, the, the meaning, the main point. And Judges, uh, the last verse of the book, tells us that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And thus the whole book really is scene after scene of that theme playing out. However, just a note of caution, we can't simply take that verse at face value. If we do, we won't understand the book's full thrust. Okay, so that statement is actually set against a backdrop of a greater theological idea. So were we to ask, is it true that in those days there was no king in Israel? Well, yes and no. Humanly considered, sure, there was no uh, king sitting on the nation's throne. But is it true to say that Israel had no king? It is not. It is not true. The reality is, and what that verse is kind of driving us towards is, in those days, Israel had rejected God as king and thus began to do what was right in their own eyes. And that principle holds true not just throughout the Old Testament, but through every fabric of our life and and, and the life of our culture. That when we reject God, either individually or corporately, when we reject God as the supreme authority, the lawgiver, the determining of what's right and wrong, uh, the decider as far as salvation and grace, that that it is his glory above ours, that as soon as we decide that that is not true, All of humanity is relegated to the subjective opinions of people saying this is right, this is wrong. That theme leads everything into complete and utter chaos. That is what that verse is driving home to us. It's not simply that there was no human king and so Israel didn't know what to do. That's not true. Israel rejected God as king. And any time that happens, when you and I do it, when our culture does it, All that leads to is continual declining cycles of chaos. And that's where the book brings home to us. Now to go a little bit further, that's not all it's trying to communicate. For if we only read Judges as this picture, right, scene after scene after scene of the effects of human sin and the rejection of God, we've also missed another big point of the book. For at its base level, the enduring idea that goes through Judges is not simply the rejection of God, but of the conquering reality of God's enduring promise and mercy towards the very people that continually reject him. 
for the thread that runs through the book of Judges, it's not simply God raises up a deliverer, but that God shows mercy to his people time and time again. Is that good news? Three of you think so. Is that not good news? Okay, because I assure you, my life can take on the form of cycles that need God to show me grace over and over and over again. And thus, with those things in mind, the book of Judges lays out in front of us. Now, as we start going through these deliverers, right, these judges, the people that God raises up to bring his people out of oppression, I think Kenan introduced us to Othniel last week. This week we meet a man named Ehud. Now, let me tell you something we're going to find is true of most of these judges, is that God is going to raise up surprising and unexpected people. In fact, he doesn't just do that in this book. If you go back starting in Genesis and reading forward, you're going to find that that is the pattern of the way that God delivers. Surprising and unexpected people bring about God's message and God's deliverance here on earth. So just think about, uh, go back to uh, uh, Abraham. God calls an idol-worshiping, nomadic pagan to leave his family at the age of 75 to birth a nation. God chooses Moses as an infant to be placed in a basket in a crocodile-infested river, and he's floated down to the daughter of Pharaoh. God picks a prostitute in Rahab living on the wall of Jericho to bring safety to his own people. God picks a teenage boy with a slingshot to slay a giant. And God sends his son, born of a virgin in a manger, in a forgotten suburb who works as a carpenter who's an unorthodox rabbi to offer himself as the lamb for the sins of the world. God's deliverance always comes in surprising and unimagined ways. And I say that to you on the outset just to encourage you that some of you may be going, I need God to show up. And I'm just here to tell you that he will. He's just going to do it in ways that maybe are unexpected and unimaginable to you right now. Because this is the way God works. And each judge we meet, whether it's Othniel, Ehud, Samson, Gideon, all the Deborah, all these judges along the way are signposts and signals to the greater deliverer that is to come. Always pointing forward. Okay, so it is, it is tempting that we read Judges and we begin to put on a little bit of a moralistic framework, right? So be like Ahud over here, don't be like Ahud. Be like Samson, don't be like Samson. Be like Gideon, don't be like Gideon, right? There's all these warning to heeds and examples to follow. Now those things are in there, but those aren't the primary points. The primary point, points is that God delivers his people from sin and he does it in his own surprising ways and that his grace and mercy always overshadows the sinful choices of his own people. That's the theme we're getting in the book of Judges. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention this morning to Judges chapter 3. As standing, if you're able, I invite you to follow along through verses 12 through 23. I do apologize for a little bit of a longer reading this morning. 
And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, you're going to see that refrain throughout the book over and over again. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We'll unpack that historically here in a moment. He gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. You make a mental note there that that's Jericho, city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Verse 15, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. King commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and then dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the door to the roof chamber behind them, and locked them. It's the word of God for the people of God, and God's people say, praise be to God, you may be seated. Uh, Father, we do just ask in this short time we have together that your word uh, would go forth, that it would move in power that you would bring home to us the promises that it says is true about itself, uh, that it's transformative, that it doesn't return empty, and may it do its work this morning, beginning with me. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking, uh, total aside, uh, that we probably should have put some sort of parental disclaimer on the Judges series. I was looking around last service, a couple of my kids were in here, uh, a couple of them were in the back and seeing some of my friend's kids is going, there's some concepts and just things that happen in this book that are pretty violent and pretty grotesque. So my encouragement as a parent to the other parents is read ahead. All right, read ahead. You may go, mm, I don't want to have that conversation yet and then send them on back to the Sunday school instead of bringing them in here that morning. It'll be your choice. All right, so this morning, now we get a pretty violent story. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I tried to think through illustrations, fun stories. I, I don't have any. All right, we got the text. We're just going to move through it and see what God shows us. Uh, and I promise I'll let you out of here a good two and a half hours before Kenan would. All right. So, so, I can say that. He's not here right now. Uh, all right, so we meet in verse 12 the reality of this circumstance. Israel has sinned, they've turned their back on God, and in response to their disobedience, God is simply fulfilling what he promised to fulfill all the way back in Deuteronomy. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And the way the cursing takes form in Judges is by way of God sending an oppressor. And the oppressor here is Eglon, king of Moab. Okay, now we got to stop here for a minute to set the backdrop of why that's a big deal. Because we read that here in Memphis in 2022, and that just sounds like another guy. Right? That's just another dude God raised up. But we're going to miss the depth 
of the condemnation that God and the author here is trying to drive home that will get the Israelites' attention at just how far you've fallen as people of the promise. So if you were, you don't have to go back there, but just make a note of Genesis chapter 19. Okay, in Genesis chapter 19, really that whole narrative, 18, 19, God is in the process of judging and destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, in destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, we'll note that we, we are going to see a man named Lot. That's not the first time we meet Lot. We meet Lot in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham away from his family. says he took his wife, his servants, and his nephew Lot. We meet Lot again. When they get to the land, Lot's uh, uh, shepherds, they can't get along with Abraham's shepherds. So in all that strife, they decide, hey, we're going to go a separate way. Abraham says, Lot, you pick where you want to go. Lot picks the choicest land and goes there. Lot gets kidnapped. Lot, all kinds of things happen to Lot. But here's what we learn about him. Lot has this just intrinsic draw to the city. And the city in which he wound up residing in is Sodom. So right before God's about to destroy it, uh, he sends word to Lot. Abraham's family is going to keep his promise to preserve him. Tells Lot and Lot gets out of there. Lot flees the city. It's Lot, his two daughters, and his wife. Now some of you remember, his wife turns around, sees the destruction, turns into salt. No idea what happens there. And most theologians that try to tell you they do are lying. Uh, Just really bizarre story. She turns into salt, and then Lot and his two daughters escape. Now they're watching or not watching, but they're hearing, right, all this sounds of destruction as they go back, and Lot's thinking, it's a little bit of conjecture, going, all right, I'm not going back to the city. That didn't turn out too well. So in Genesis 19, I promise we're headed somewhere, in Genesis 19, we find Lot in a cave with his two daughters. His two daughters, whose husbands were destroyed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, are talking to one another And the oldest daughter comes up with this plan. Hey, we don't have any kids. And the only way in which we're going to be able to get pregnant and have children is going to be to get with our dad. Because anyone else that we could have gotten remarried to, they just got destroyed. So the daughters get together. They get Lot drunk on wine, and they sort of take their turn. Both get pregnant. Out of that pregnancy, the oldest daughter has a son. You know what she names that son? Moab. That is the origin of this people. So when he tells us, the author and judges, that the king of Moab is about to be ruling over Israel, that's a big deal. Because if you're an Israelite, here's what you're now hearing. I, being a child of the promise, the promise coming through Abraham, I am now subjugated to the incestuous line of his nephew Lot. That is now my king. You see, God is trying to get their attention. Not only that, Moab, the name Moab, is very similar to the Hebrew word for father. What else has God shown me? saying, okay, if y'all want to live like the Canaanites, let me give you a king that looks like the daddy you want him to be. Because you don't look like Abraham, and you don't want me as king. So now you can serve your new father, 
Eglon, descendant of the incestuous relationship of Lot and his oldest daughter. In this, we get a little bit of the hint of Jesus talking to the religious leaders of his day when he says, oh no, you've rejected your real father and now you serve your new father, Satan. God is here saying, yeah, you have a father, Israel, but that father is not Abraham anymore. It's Moab and you look a lot more like him than you do like me. So the king of Moab, now ruling and reigning over the people of Israel, but not just any king of Moab, Eglon. Now, if we were to look at that name Eglon, it is uh, very uh, similar to the the Hebrew idea of a bull or a calf. Uh, When we think Eglon, when you conjure up the mental picture of this guy, that already tells us, later in the scripture, he was a very fat man. That's just the Hebrew, all right, comes straight forward. We're to think of a dumb, brutish, morbidly obese ox. Like that's who this king is. And this is, every single one of these details is just stinging Israel, point after point after point, saying, this is who y'all have become. This is what happens when you reject God as king and go your own way. And so now this morbidly obese, dim-witted, or we'll learn, the Moabites in this passage, the king, his bodyguards, the palace security, all of the Moabites presented in this passage were supposed to read and chuckle about the stupidity they display all along the way. And the author is saying, this is now who Israel serves. Reject God as king, this is where it will take you. Incidentally, there's a principle of just sin, right, and how it works out. So you could go all the way back to that cave in Genesis 19. I bet Lot's daughter never intended, intended to lead to a global, you know, a regional crisis, but it did. You know, a lot of us don't intend for these little secret sins we keep hidden away to destroy our lives, but they will. Okay, there is a principle with sin when left unattended, that it will always take you further than you want to go and cost you more than you want to pay. Now, Israel is tasting that reality in real time. So Moab, uh, uh, Eglon, king of Moab, now ruling over him. Verse 13, he gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. City of Palms, Joshua chapter 6. You know what God says about Jericho, which is the city of Palms, in Joshua chapter 6? destroy it and never rebuild it and if you rebuild it cursed is the person who rebuilds it and cursed is his firstborn this place is not even supposed to exist so we want an even bigger picture of what's happening in God's promised land right now is in the promised land of God that's supposed to be given to the children of faith via Abraham they're being ruled over by the uh, uh, prodigy of an incestuous relationship with Abraham's nephew who lives and rules in a city that God destroyed that was never supposed to be rebuilt. This is the scene. And in verse 14, the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Just note that 18 years. We'll come back to that in our last point this morning. So then the people, after 18 years, they cry out. 
that's not even necessarily a repentant cry. Uh, the word there can just be a plea. Help! We don't like this. Get us out of these circumstances. God in his mercy is going to respond. He raises up for them. Here we meet our judge, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, at this point in all of your lives, you're all really good Bible students. And you would note that rarely, if ever, are we told of any biblical character what his dominant hand is. Now, we note that, that when you see something like that, it's supposed to, to grab our attention. In fact, the, the, the primary time you're ever, uh, ever seen anything referred to as far as a dominant hand in Scripture, it's only to God, and it's his right hand. Right, because that's the place, biblically speaking, given God anthropomorphic language, his human characteristics. Right, that's the hand of his power, where he executes his will. And yet here, in this obscure line, we're told that Ehud is a left-handed man. And that can mean a couple different things. Uh, conclusion still the same, but the way it maybe plays out, it could go a couple different ways. Uh, the first is, there's some scholarship that says the reason why Ehud was left-handed, the language there lends us to believe it's because his right-handed was deformed. So he really had no other option. That he could only use his left hand because whether he was uh, crippled or, or missing a few fingers, whatever it may be, that the right hand was not operational, rendering him a left-handed man. The other reason why, and actually both can work together to be true, is it just culturally considered, there was this uh, just kind of, I don't know if idiom's the right word, but just uh, a more just folk belief in this time that left-handed people were just kind of oddballs. Nothing much expected out of them. And in fact, we know that biblically that still rings true because Wes told us he's left-handed. Right? He told us that earlier. See, and I didn't even plan that this morning. He said it in his intro, and I think that was from the Holy Spirit. Okay, but either way, here's a big point, big picture point. In this culture, if you were left-handed, no one really paid much attention to you. There was this sort of assumption that you weren't really a threat, weren't really going to accomplish much. You were just odd. Now, Ehud is going to take what was culturally seen as a weakness, and God uses it as an advantage. Right, and I heard, I think I credited Ronnie with it first hour, but then I was told it was Adrian Rogers, but I'm just going to credit on both. Uh, that there's an idea, and I think it's biblical and true, that where dependence is the goal, weakness is to our advantage. And Ehud is going to find that true. That what would render him in a state of weakness works to his advantage because God is going to take human weakness and through that show his strength. Now that's a pattern of what God does throughout scripture. And in the part where we get in danger is if we start buying into the cultural lines of reasoning that says show no weakness, have no weakness, only present yourself as strong. Well, if you're only strong and you have no weakness and you, do, if you are not dependent at all, why are you here? Why am I here? Because the church is not the environment for self-assured, independent people. 
It's the environment for those that say, God, just, I can't do it. I'm weak. I can't save myself. God, I can't get this done. And it's the acknowledgement of the dependence that brings us more into more relational intimacy with Christ. And here Ehud knows physically in real time, okay, where dependence on God is the goal, weakness is to our advantage. So being a left-handed man, as someone whom no one in culture is going to expect anything from, certainly no one in Moab is going to expect anything from, he begins to cleverly conjure the way in which he is going to deliver the people of Israel. Look at it with me. Let's keep going. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. It's about 18 inches. You should have a footnote there in most of your Bibles. It's about a foot and a half. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. All right, so if you were left-handed and you were going to try to grab a sword really quickly and thrust it into the king, you're going to go here, grab it, and stab. All right, so that's why it gives us that detail. Puts it in right here. Furthermore, remember, in a right-hand dominant culture that doesn't even factor in the reality of a left-handed person being threatened, if he's going to go into the presence of a king and go through security and they're going to pat him down and check him out for everything, guess the only side they're really checking? This one. They're used to right-handed guys. So if there's nothing right here, he's good to go. Right, so here comes Ehud. He's got his dagger. He's got his plan. His weakness has now been flipped to an advantage. And he's going to go into the presence of the king. So he goes in, 16, 17, and presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished uh, presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Now we're about to draw a point. I'm going to have you help me make it, right? Because I want you to look and find the difference in how he addresses Eglon in 19 and 20, but not yet. Not yet. Just note, in 19... There's this little passing detail that should be heartbreaking. It says that he turned around at this geographical location, the idols of Gilgal. Okay, now being in the land, the promised land, where only Yahweh was supposed to be worshipped, these idols should not even have existed. They should have been torn down. They never should have been erected in the first place. And yet here these idols are, in this context, no reference to the heartbreaking nature of them, no reference to the fact that it signals pagan uh, worship. Israel had become so used to pagan idolatry that it doesn't even register with them that something is wrong. The idols have simply become a geographic landmark. Think about that. The sin of the land had become so normalized that they use idols as a geographic reference point. Okay, now let's pause there. Because this is what happens with sin untreated. That if we normalize, let's just start with ourselves. If we normalize sin in our own life, by not repenting, not understanding it, for what it is, incidentally, you know, the Bible doesn't present sin to us as good and bad. 
Never. It's not bad habits, good habits. It's not good choices, bad choices. Sin, biblically considered, is only presented as life and death. Life and death. This sin has lived amongst Israel for so long and became so normal, they didn't even bat an eye at it anymore. It's a geographical landmark. Here's the danger for you and me. That there's some stuff in our life, we're treating them like geographic landmarks, and it's killing us from the inside out. And some of the work today, look, and I'm, look, jump right there in, right in there with you. Some of our work today is asking the Spirit, hey, what have you made a geographical landmark that needs to be repented and uprooted? All right, so he sees these idols, turns around, and he's going to head back to the king. Now, he's conversing with the king here, and he's going to make two statements. He's going to address him twice, once in verse 19, and he's going to address him again in verse 20. And we're going to see something switch, uh, shift, a change there made in 19 and 20. See if you can find it. Verse 19, he says, <clears throat> I have a secret message for you, O king. Okay, now the king commands silence. And everybody runs out. Notice, again, they're trying to present the Moabites as these dim-witted, kind of dumb, brutish people. The king doesn't even ask the people to leave. He just says, be quiet. They leave. Right? If we're an Israelite, we're kind of reading this a little bit sort of like slapstick Hebrew comedy uh, right now. Now, it's not my taste. All right? I like dry humor. Right? right? That's why I've got my Nate Bargatze tickets in November. If you don't know who he is, you need to get them. All right? He's clean, and you will laugh for an hour straight. All right, one of the greatest nights of your life, and you'll thank me later. Uh, okay, so he says, I have a message for you, O king. But now look at verse 20. He's going to address him again. So everybody leaves. He's in closer now. He has his ear, and in verse 20 he says, I have a message from God for you. Anybody note what's missing there? Somebody said it, O king. Well done. In verse 20, king is dropped. You know why? Because now the real king showed up. And here's what God is in the business of doing. God will tear down every single kingdom that is not oriented towards his glory. And Eglon in verse 19 goes from king to verse 20, nameless, meaningless dude. In one moment, God tears it down. Now, we can think through that about the implications of nations and empires and world history, and sure, that happens. But can I say that I think before we jump to there, maybe we need to start with ourselves. Because the primary kingdom we'll all be tempted to build is the kingdom of me. And a life that is not oriented towards the glory of God. And I think my gospel plea an exhortation for all of us, starting with myself, but all of us this morning would be better in his mercy that God tear this kingdom down now than the ultimate final day when there is no repentance left. Amen? God wants all of us. Every little bit of me needs to belong to him. 
Okay, now some of us who are in Christ, just by his grace, we repent of our sins, responded to the finished work of Jesus on the, on the cross. We really believe in his resurrection, and God did all that, right, and mercifully revealed it to us. Just know, even being in Christ, our lives are going to be a continual rhythm of us trying to sit on that throne and God graciously <laughs> getting us off, right, because he loves us too much. Okay, that's going to happen. And the goal over time, this is what sanctification is, which is the fancy word of being set apart, right? Apart from your old self to look like the new self. That over time, uh, Jesus sits on that throne longer before we try to kick him off, right? And then we repent and he comes back like, but for some of us that have not tasted the mercy and grace and salvation only found in Jesus, there is an ultimate dethroning that will happen. And that's the day in which repentance and turning back is no longer available. And my plea would be, if you don't know Jesus and your entire life is aimed at the kingdom of you, that maybe today would be the day of salvation. Because 19 to 20 is a pretty abrupt shift here. And that's how God does it. God removes the kingdoms that are not oriented towards his glory. So he creeps in closer and says, hey, I've got a divine message for you. Bam. And Eglon is toast. So the fat closes over the sword. Uh, and this is really the genius, honestly, genius of his plan. He is uh, most likely, hard to tell, the language is a little, could, could, uh, uh, architecturally could mean a couple different things. But let's take it straightforward here that is in the roof chamber, constructed, would have had a restroom in it, right, which would have given a little bit of an alley of escape to go down and out through. So doors are locked, buys him plenty of time. Why? Because what servant wants to disturb the king using the restroom? Right now, if you don't think God isn't sovereign over every detail of human history, he's got old boy assassinated in the bathroom where his bowels come out so his servants smell that thing the king is relieving himself and they refuse to go in doing what? Buying time for Ehud to escape. Okay, so we did a little bit of encouragement. Hard to get encouraged by a passage about a man dying in a bathroom and his bowels coming out but let's just take the point that God is sovereign over the smallest parts of human history. Okay, now in doing that he allows Ehud to escape. He escapes uh, they're going to uh, rout the Moabites, and God's people are going to be delivered. Pretty straightforward story uh, this morning. But God takes a left-handed man, shockingly, very surprisingly, to the people of his day, and brings judgment on sin and deliverance for his people. Last point I will make this morning. We can go enjoy the, the beautiful weather uh, God's given us. Right, because even Romans 1 tells us, right, some of his invisible attributes are made known by what is seen. So we can get outside and see and perceive parts of God in nature this afternoon. But verses uh, 20, no, 19 and 20, tell us, I'm sorry, not 19 and 20, go to 30, go to 30. And my, my, my zero's mixed up, 20 and 30. Moab was subdued the day, and how many years did it say, does it say they had rest? Somebody tell me. How many years? Eighty. 
How many years were they oppressed? We read it in the very beginning. 18. 18 years of oppression, 80 years of peace. 80 being kind of a rounded number of four generations. Can we just note and be encouraged by this this morning? That God's mercy always outweighs our sin. You got a four to one ratio here. 18 years of oppression, 80 years of peace. Did they deserve 80 years of peace based on their sin? No. <laughs> Even if we'd go, all right, let's just do one to one. 18 years of oppression, let's give them 18 years of peace. Even that would have been probably too much for them. But I'm encouraged, aren't you? That God's mercy flows disproportionately to my sin. Because I assure you I don't deserve eternal peace and eternal life. But God is so, and this is one of the continual points of the book of Judges. God's mercy overshadows his people's sin. That he delivers them and restores them to a place that they never could have created for themselves. Does that sound familiar to us? That's what God does in Jesus. Is he takes our sin and he overshadows it with undeserved mercy and ushers us into an eternal life that we never could have earned. That we didn't deserve. 18 years oppression, 80 years peace. So just be encouraged. There ain't nothing you've done that God can't cover. But not only does he cover it and forgive it and wipe it clean, he does so and then ushers you into eternal peace and eternal life through his son. 18 years of oppression, 80 years peace. God's mercy far outweighs the sins of his people. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for this little story. Uh, we hope we did it justice. Uh, we hope that uh, there's encouragement from it. Uh, certainly there's some moral implications from it. But more than any of that, that we would just stand in awe that you really are a gracious and delivering God. And you bring that deliverance and that grace and that mercy from unexpected places. And few places <laughs> were, were less fitting to hold the Savior of the world than a manger and yet you came in unexpected ways to call a people home to be our ultimate deliverer and God so for anyone here that does not know you that maybe today is the day of salvation they would repent of their sins and trust solely in Christ that he did hang on the cross absorbing the wrath of sins that was not poured out on us being raised from the dead uh, displaying victoriously to everyone the grave is conquered the enemy is defeated that someone would just embrace that reality for those of us that you've already graciously redeemed by your prerogative we just say thank you and we acknowledge that hey even in some of our lives we've set up some geographical landmarks but those things need to be uprooted we're not seeing our sin for what it is and in your mercy would you get it up and get it out and we ask this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.